What is your happiness about your practice? In principle, we let go. But to let go, you have to hold on to something. And a good way to start is to choose a focus, a point of focus that you feel comfortable with. So that could be the breath or your body or the sound of silence. The point of holding on is not to get attached, but it's, it's a refuge. You've taken the refuges and the precepts. So whenever the mind starts to veer into dark corners, tightness or agitation or mind states that are quite poisonous, Anxiety is very, very insidious. It can really burn up all our energy and destroy our practice. So it's very wonderful to have a connection to the refuges and the precepts and to go over that again and again. Taking refuge is finding shelter, even in the middle of your Meditation practice, the refuges that you took at the beginning of this session, bring them back in. What is refuge in Buddha anyway? The Buddha, if you bring that refuge into your meditation, imagine that you're sitting at the feet of the Buddha. What is Buddha? Buddha is the awakened mind. But there was this being that awakened and had the compassion to teach us millennia ago. So when we remember Buddha, then for me, the remembrance of the teacher of the Buddha himself brings up a lot of gratitude. And gratitude is a kind of shelter. Gratitude of mind. What does it feel like to be grateful? There's so much to be grateful for. We take refuge in this awakened being who promises through this practice that we can also have that infallible or indestructible peace. And we want that. A peace that is complete freedom from all this constraint and tension and twistedness in our life that ties us up in knots. So to untie the knots, to disentangle, that would be something to be very grateful for. So the understanding that our patience with conditions and our ability to reflect on the path itself and that we're on it, even if it feels terrible, that's just a feeling and that will pass. But we're still, our feet are on the path and we have a lot to be grateful for. So that kind of contemplation, when you tuck it into your feeling of anxiety, it should be like a little air conditioner works on a hot day. It'll cool things down. It'll help the mind breathe in and out more easily. Even if it's for five minutes and then suddenly you see that, oh no, the tension is back. I'm all twisted up in knots. No. 
just going back to that sense of what gives refuge, what gives shelter, what gives protection, and lean towards that. Hold that in your heart. And that will take up the space. It'll chase the monsters out. Mara will run. But when we focus on the anxiety, it just gets bigger. And it's very hard not to focus on it. But we have to remember right way of focusing, right way of refuge, right way of continuing. So if we go back to the anxiety, it's as if you've gone down the wrong highway and you suddenly realize that you missed your exit or you missed the turn. It's the same with these kind of invasive feelings that keep us locked in our locker is locked into our habits, which we continue to hold tightly because we feel that they belong to us. Of course, contemplate that there is no one that they can belong to. Then you throw out this concept of self and you stop thinking about your anxiety. Perhaps that also will help to cool the way we are hinged on it, teetering on it, about to fall down on our face. But we regain our balance, take refuge again, take precepts again. Enjoy the thought that you're beautiful beings, you're virtuous beings. Just the fact that you've come on this day of mindful practice is, is something rare and precious in this world. So you can feel very good about yourself. You can rejoice that you're doing this. This is the Himalaya. This is a hard mountain to climb, but you're on it and you're ascending. Never forget that. So it's really how we pay attention and what we unconsciously are choosing to remember. So this is a consciousness and a conscientious way of refocusing and returning to what supports the best in us. Suffering is our teacher. We don't take shelter by obliterating suffering. We take shelter by understanding suffering. And then eventually we will see that this realm, it will always be suffering. Just this morning, I looked at something that I'd written seven years ago, and it was just as if it was written today. And I've listened to things I've said 25 years ago, and I could give that same talk today. And if it was a millennia ago, it would be the same talk, because this world is always full of suffering. It always was, and it always will be. You cannot change this realm. That, that's a hubris. We think we're so powerful that we can change a realm. No way. But we can change our minds. So the mind, when it suffers, we can see the cause of it. And we know that we've been given a way to direct the mind so that we can not suffer. We can overcome the suffering. And that we can do, and that is important for us to do. 
But if you keep thinking about the suffering of the world, there's no end to it. You can choose now there are so many countries at war, but there's so many people that are on life support. Who are you going to choose? Which suffering is worse? How can you possibly judge? What about your own suffering? It's probably very difficult things that you faced in life and will face. Old age, sickness, and death, that's suffering. We're not going to escape that. But the mind that takes shelter in Dhamma knows suffering, knows its origin, knows the way out of suffering, and walks that path. And that is a way to balancing our faculties, balancing ourselves inwardly so that we understand the truth of suffering rather than believing that it's something that we can control because that comes from a notion of a self and that's where greed, hatred, and delusion live. So what you're holding has to be shifted a little bit to remember that the suffering begins and ends in our own hearts. There are beings who have spent decades practicing this practice, and I was fortunate to meet two that I think had gone beyond the suffering of the body and the mind. And therefore, I gave up the world. The world still rises in my mind, but I renounced the world when I was in my 30s, though I was tricked into it. I'm so glad because at least I'm on the path and this path has taught me how to deal with the mind that creates and whips up suffering just the way you whip up cream on your cake. And then you eat it. But you don't want to be eating this whipped up suffering because it doesn't decrease the suffering. So see the result of it. But see the result of a mind that can sit and focus on one point and burn away all this origin of suffering in the heart. And the heart becomes like a radiant light bulb. Anybody that will meet you will be so happy to see you. So you can be one person in this world who has less greed, less hatred, and less delusion, and eventually will just radiate loving kindness to many, many beings and decrease the total suffering in the world. How's that for a formula? That's refuge. But it takes time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so much for gradual, right? Because we're very impatient. You know, the first letter of the word peace, P stands for patience. And we want peace, but we have to be so patient. Well, it comes. But we want it all right away now. And that's just greed. And it's the principal cause of our suffering. But at least we're greedy for something good. But still, just to be very patient and have compassion for ourselves because the habits are strong. And Mara lies in wait. It's a, a project, but it's possible. The world that the Buddha lived in was full of war and slaughter of beings and cruelty never mind about 
women were treated like animals, like property. A lot of suffering for many beings. So what's different? So women have more rights. We don't have any rights. Human beings have no rights. All this thing about rights, it's just an idea. It's a concept. Our understanding of truth is our inheritance. We have a right to free our minds from all these kind of worldly winds. There is no justice. There's wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. Human beings don't really know how to govern each other. We can see that. Unless they have an ethical, moral base, unless they understand the truth and the nature of things, the nature of the mind, how can we possibly trust political choices to govern? Because they'll be influenced by worldly winds, by greed, by enmity, and by deluded perception. But if we take refuge in truth, that's really a way to govern our minds. And then we might be lucky enough to live in a place where there's a good government too. But it won't last because everything's impermanent. And we have to face the suffering of that. So you can see the world is like a set of dominoes. They stand up and then they fall down. But we don't have to play that game on this path. This is a path where we're free of games, where we face the truth of our birth, our life and our death with enough compassion and enough understanding to retain some equilibrium and to keep that radiant light to keep our ethical, moral base intact, no matter what kind of millions people offer us. That's not what we're here for. The riches of the Dhamma exceed any worldly treasure. That's why it's a true refuge. We don't get trained in this and all of us have been habituated. Our minds are very fixed. They get more and more stiff and fixed as we get older. That's just how it is. And we're not taught to do this at an early age. So you might have a glimpse of something from afar, or you might glimpse it on a map, but that doesn't mean you've been there. Doesn't mean you've seen it. Doesn't mean you've really tasted it or know it deeply. It's just you're passing through. Have you ever been to Alaska? Well, I did go there very briefly, but just in the airport, I don't really know anything about Alaska, but I could say I've been there, but I don't know anything about Alaska. So a glimpse is practically zero. The point of this practice is not to get a photograph, but the fact that you have a photograph, you know that it's on the map. It's on the map of your consciousness. You then proceed, you progress in practicing so that you can be in that all the time, really in that there. Not only conscious of it, but your being exudes that truth. So seeing that we are so encased in habits and 
habits insinuate themselves into our minds over and over and over again, we have a lot of addictions. You may not be a drug addict, but we are very drugged. We're drugged by the internet, the media, sugar, different kinds of food, our clothing, our conventions of time. There's so many things about our life that if we were deprived of them, we would be confused and disoriented. So we have to learn to abide in a space of compassion where no matter what happens, and one of the practices that I've been doing over the years, and the more I do it, the more difficult I realize it actually is, I try to abide in a mind of compassion so that even if somebody comes through the door of the meditation hall with a rifle pointed at me, I would not hold fear or hatred for that person. All we want to do is be present for the silence where the mind is no longer thinking, functioning on the rational or irrational level. It's just observing. There's the witness, bearing witness to a feeling arising and ceasing in the heart to an opening of the heart, to a gladness in the heart, to compassion in the heart. These are feelings, they're not thoughts. It's just an opening within. Like when you feel a pain, it's ouch. But before the mind says, oh, it hurts, there's just a sensation of sharpness or dullness. So just be present in the heart for that pure open awareness the quiet and stillness. Like if you sit on the beach and you listen to the sound of the waves, what does the mind do? Sometimes it does nothing at all. It's just hearing, hearing the wave, hearing the splash. It's just a sound. Oh, there's just a sense of a vibration. There's no thought at all with that. So that's where we want the mind to be. That's just pure being in that moment. And then you don't have to solidify that into a being that, that hears. It's just sense doors and the skills of hearing, of seeing, of feeling. A blind, a deaf, blind person who can't taste anything or smell anything still has the ability to know the Dhamma. Where is this being centered? If we have no hands and no feet, are we still a being? Of course. But we do need certain ability to, to know, to be aware. Just pure awareness. Awareness of the present moment of what is arising here and now, and to be aware of that disappearing. Then we know impermanent. The impermanence of the thought. Don't rest your knowledge of Dhamma on theories. Because you can argue forever. You can argue any side you want and you'll win or lose. Then you have somebody to win or lose. Then you're caught back in the self, which is not Dhamma, not true. Impermanent. 
So hearing consciousness is the jet plane to Nibbana because the ear doors are like two big radar dishes, but it's just the knowing, it's the awareness where we have the sense of what is now. And when hearing occurs, it arises and then it disappears. And in the ending of it, there's just the knowing of that. There's just the pure open awareness. It's not about the object, but it's about our skill in being present for that knowledge. The truth of the effervescent nature of everything. Nothing has any substantial being or existence. It's all just waves on the ocean. The ocean is not the wave. And the wave is not the ocean. The ocean is a concept. There is no such thing as an ocean. It's just movement. But there is this ability to know it. And that awareness supersedes everything that it knows. It isn't what it knows. When we know a wave, the knowing, the awareness of the wave is not the wave. It's not the water. It's not the sea. And that's the purification. You can't purify the wave. <laughs> you don't purify the object. You purify that which knows. And that is not a being. It's not the body. So then when awareness is aware of itself, that's a reflection. You can look into the mirror. And if you keep looking into the mirror, if the mirror looks into the mirror of the mirror of the mirror of the mirror, it never ends. It's endless. It's infinite. It's exponential. It's beyond our comprehension. We can only know that intuitively. And this is the power of the mind that knows, that is able to be trained to that level of purity where it abides in this awareness. It is the most powerful aspect of our life on this earth. If we can understand that, we can live and die in complete peace. There's nothing more to be accomplished. Anything else that we accomplish in life becomes nothing. You look at a volcano, for example. It's a mountain, and when it explodes, it becomes an inferno of fire. So every single thing that is created on this earth, including the internet, is bound for dissolution. So we have to be extremely cognizant of the fact that everything that we invest our time in is in the process of disappearing in front of our eyes, but we're not aware of that. We're identified with all of it, and that's the bane of our existence. That's our downfall. That's why this teaching is very, very extraordinary because it so takes us beyond this world. But if we don't give up the world, then we only get a glimpse of this. It's a photograph, you put it back in the drawer and you forget about it. That's why I'm in robes. I don't want to forget about it. 
And every time I get up in the morning, I look at my robe and it's the teaching of the Buddha. I live it. I put my shoes on. I'm living it. I eat my food. I'm living it. The precepts hold me in the container all the time. I cannot even take a breath without knowing that all of this is just the fabric or the arrow that points me to the Buddha's teaching, which is that it's all impermanent. In fact, we wear patched robes. They're just patches. And the world is all against patches. It's a throwaway world. If it's patched, throw it away. We wear patches. Let's wear this truth. If we wear it, it will soak into us. If we don't soak into it, we put it in a drawer and we forget about it. Because the mind is so fickle, so untrained. We need training. It's not based on age or being in the robe or not in the robe. Somebody who's an octogenarian and a great historian or a great astronomer, a great scientist, they may know nothing about the Dhamma. I was just reading about integrated information theory, which is a physicist's way of describing the universality of consciousness. And this Italian Tononi physicist has had long conversations with the Dalai Lama where they seem to agree on so many points. But that doesn't mean, just because he understands it through his physics, it doesn't mean that he understands it in his heart. But he's getting the physics equations to prove that consciousness is in everything. But it's interesting to be curious. The Buddha recommends that we investigate. We investigate the condition of our being, of this consciousness, deeply, deeply, deeply. We keep investigating and being curious. Our curiosity just needs a little bit of tailoring. I like to sew. And when you sew two things together, it's very difficult to make straight lines with flimsy fabric. And when the mind is not being tamed easily, it's in a flimsy mode, it's very hard to tailor our curiosity to stay on one track. But we have to use our samadhi power. This is why the Buddha recommends sila samadhi panya, so you have your virtue, your precepts as the core. That's the ethical foundation of our curiosity. So you're going to be curious in a wholesome way, but your wholesomeness also has to be tailored in a way that you stay on track because your curiosity will go off on an intellectual tangent. The thinking mind easily gets excited about knowledge, information, theories, about this, that, and the other, plants and animals and forests and consciousness and all the rest of it. These are things that are useful to know. Let's know all this. But we don't have to know all that. What you need to know is, is there restraint in the mind? Is there defilement arising? Is there greed? And as soon as you notice that, 
to be curious enough to investigate, oh, there's a lot of wanting. You're off track and you're on the cushion, but the mind is not present. And it's not consciousness seeing into the mirror of itself. It's not reflective. It's intellectual. And basically, I don't want to use the word rubbish. No, it's not that it's rubbish, but it's not conducive to waking up. It's just more distraction, and we have enough. We have enough. So how full does the mind have to be? I mean, one can have many PhDs, but they won't help us. Those are degrees of nothing. Impermanent, middle path, and... We need to keep that curiosity one-pointed in a Dhamma way into awareness itself. We will never be able to study awareness enough. Let awareness know more and more about itself. Purifying the awareness, and that will be the path of our purification.